Colossians 2 is where we are. Let me get all this stuff set up. Colossians chapter 2, and uh, I'll begin reading in verse 11. Paul writes, You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were baptized with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He does a hold on to the head. He does a hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you die with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So we will look at verse 14 in particular as we begin um, this evening. Where he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he's continuing to explain to the people here, uh, to the recipients, all that took place on the cross. What happened in the atonement. Uh, They do understand that their sins were forgiven. But he's, in a sense, kind of taking it to the next level and helping them to really recognize what that really means. In other words, you just make the statement, I'm forgiven, but he wants them to understand uh, what has transpired. So when he says in verse 14, by canceling the record of debt, um, that word that's used there in the Greek language means to completely wipe off. It means to remove by wiping off, like if you had a blackboard and you erased the blackboard. Uh, the word was, a, was, a, was applied to a process of obliterating writing on any material. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, when uh, writing material is expensive, uh, you erase and reuse whatever because you don't want to keep buying new stuff. And that's kind of the idea. That's where the word came from. So some of the uses in the scripture retain this literal meaning, but most of the time it's used in a figurative way to blot out something or to wipe something off. So the idea in all the uses is to cause something to cease by obliterating or eliminating any evidence. 
So as I mentioned before, when we get into all the different tenses in the Greek language, so this is in the aorist tense. So again, and, this, and you'll see the aorist tense in most references to what happened in the atonement. These are things that have been accomplished for us. It's already a done deal in that sense. It was accomplished by Christ. So once again, God has blotted out and totally erased the certificate of debt. So the idea there is not only do, even though we need to be forgiven of our sins, there's a payment that is due us because of our sins. All right? God owes us something. Uh, Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. So that's a universal truth. Okay? There, and that's why when we speak of Christ coming and dying, because sometimes a non-believer, and maybe some new believers may think this, they, they have this idea, well, how come God just can't say, I forgive you? All right? Well, the reason why he cannot just say, I forgive you, is because God is just and holy and perfect, and he is the law, he is perfection, he is justice, and justice demands that when sin has taken place, sin must be punished. That, it, it, that you can't just let it go. Again, we understand that to a degree. Um, if someone steals from you, uh, we believe that person should at least be forced to repay us. They've caused damage, they should pay for that. Uh, in cases where there might be bodily damage or whatever, or if the person is a repeat offender, we want the individual to, we, we call that serving time. That's the penalty that our uh, culture has. Many cultures have that, not all of them, uh, for doing wrong so that the person isn't doing it again, to set them up as an example so others won't follow in their place so we don't have widespread chaos. It's a way to control people in a good way. Um, it can be used, obviously, in a bad way, but that's the idea. So God cannot, because he's holy, just let us come into heaven. He can't say, well, you know what? I like you. I'm going to forgive you of your sins. You can come to heaven. Because then he would be unjust. And, and the illustration I use a lot to kind of help us to understand how <clears throat> shocking that would be. Because, again, in our mind, we do think most of the time, we think very little of our sin. You know, because what do we think about? Well, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't robbed anyone. I've never hurt anyone. So we really think that, nah, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and so that's just, and that's on us. But if, if there was an individual who, well, let's say he was a pedophile or serial killer or maybe both of those things, and if he was found guilty and the judge was to say, ah, the, the newspapers have said a lot of bad things about you, so you have certainly suffered. I think that's enough. Nobody else thinks that's enough because of the seriousness of the crime, because of, you know, the consequences of what people have done. Uh, or what people have experienced as a result of what this individual has done. And so as a result of that, society would demand that that individual be punished for what he's done. Because uh, of it, to, not, to not be punished then means that what he has done is being minimized. What's happened with the pain experienced by those individuals, we are, now, we are not acknowledging that it was of any great consequence. Remember, that's why in the Bible um, there's capital punishment. Where God said that if you take a human life, the one who takes a human life should die. Why? Because human life, that human being was made in the image of God, it's of great value. And so if you, if you take that life, you then must pay with your life. But we don't have that if you steal a cookie. 
We don't say, you stole a cookie, you should die for that. You know, we always think that's kind of funny because we go, that, that doesn't fit the crime. All right, there's no, what is the value of a cookie? All right, it's not much, really. And even though you may be violating a lot of moral principles, we still don't think it rises to that level. So the punishment then for someone who's committed murder rises, must rise to the level of the offense, and that would require um, that individual's life. So now when we speak of how we sin against God and how we measure this rebelliousness that we have against God, it's difficult for us as finite individuals to really sense, all right, to really, to really be able to wrap our minds around the seriousness of our offense. Uh, so then when in Romans, we're just told, God reveals to us, that the wages of sin, it's, it's kind of like getting a paycheck, is death. And God is the one who must collect on the debt. We owe him the debt. And so that is why, once again, goes back to why Jesus Christ came and then why he had to give his life for us so that we then could have our sins paid for and we then could be forgiven and reconciled to God and all the rest. Um, so that's the, so the canceling of the debt then uh, is really very important. We owed God our life because of our rebelliousness, and that was paid for by Jesus Christ. So, again, it was accomplished by him. So when God canceled out our debt, it was accomplished completely. Um, that's a very, very profound truth, because we all know, again, that there are, uh, in, in, different, in the lives of different individuals, there are differences in the way we've lived life. And there are those who have, we would say, have sinned greatly. Those who have sinned grievously. And so that individual then, when we, when we become believers, we never have to worry about or think about this idea that God has forgiven us for most of our sins, but there are certain ones that are so bad, he still, in a sense, owes us more punishment because it was so grievous. That, 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 we, that doesn't happen. It's not there. I think I mentioned it before how some women, uh, actually many women go through this. I've talked to a few about this, but women who become believers, but in their past they have an abortion. And then as they grow as believers, they become much more sensitive to sin. And then one day what normally will happen is they begin to feel a great deal of guilt because of this past sin. And they then may begin to feel, I don't see how God could forgive me for that. And so, they're, so on one hand, that's a good thing, that they're recognizing that and they're, they're really comprehending the seriousness of what happened. But on the negative side is they then begin to think, some do, that God either can't or won't forgive them because it's so bad. And so there's a lot of guilt they begin to carry around. And I'm not trying to be funny. A couple of them have laughed when they, when they kind of put it together. But I, I usually begin by telling them that, you know, when you became a believer, God, he knew that about you. That wasn't a secret. Because in their mind, they've not told anybody. In, in fact, in some cases, the husband doesn't even know. It was before they ever got married or whatever. And so it's almost like you think God doesn't know. <laughs> so you say, well, you know, God knows everything. So he, he knew that before, and he still saved you. And so, and then it's just basically coming to terms with what the Bible says. God means what he says. And all sin is forgiven. Remember that Paul, even though he did not take a human life with his own hands, he initiated the taking of life and approved the taking of life when he was persecuting the church. You know, there's a story in Acts where they laid at his feet uh, the coats of the individuals who were carrying out the death sentence against St uh, Stephen. 
Right? So that, and that story is in there for us to see the, serious, the kinds of things that Paul was uh, guilty of. And in his mind, he was doing that in the name of God. He, he, he was convinced that this is what God wanted him to do, and he was zealous uh, to do that. Uh, he broke apart families. He had husbands and wives imprisoned. You know, all those types of things he was doing. Uh, and so he, when he talks about being the chief of sinners, he's thinking of all those types of things uh, that he had done. And so he recognized the degree of his forgiveness. Uh, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, before he got saved, he, the, his, he's famous. He was a slave trader. And when he became a believer, uh, he talked about being haunted in his dreams uh, of the numbers of individuals uh, that died because of what he was involved in. You know, when they were bringing slaves over, uh, it was not unusual for a slave uh, ship to lose half of their cargo, meaning the people, either in a storm or they would die and they just throw them overboard. I mean, that's just what happened. Um, and so he was haunted uh, by just the death and misery that he brought in the lives of so many people. And so he just continually reminded himself of the forgiveness um, of, uh, of, of God. And even though he committed his life and dedicated his life to really serving the Lord and doing good, he knew he would never be able to make up for what he had done. But he also knew that God wasn't requiring that. God didn't require it. He wanted to do that, but he knew that God did not require that. If God required that, he would, have, he would never make it to heaven. You would never be assured of your salvation. So some of us, maybe, maybe a lot of us, but some of us may have things in our past that no one else knows about that is really very grievous. And as we grow as Christians, sometimes you, you look back on your life or something happens and it reminds you of something that you've done and you kind of get this feeling deep inside, whether it's a feeling of guilt or maybe a, maybe a sense of fear. There's a lot of ways to maybe to describe what we might experience emotionally. And, and so, and, and there may be guilt that's associated, in fact, there's often guilt associated with that, which again, I think can be a positive thing, but then we need to remind ourselves that God knows all that, and that, that's, that's why Christ died. And in fact, I think it helps us to recognize really how gracious God is. If God had not sent Christ to die for that sin that I did, what, what, hope, what hope did I have? I had no hope. There was no chance on earth that I'd ever be able to make up for that. And that's the thing we have to remember. There's, there's no established ratio that anybody can find that establishes how many good things you have to do for whatever sins you've committed. And I don't think anybody could, and if they didn't make one up, all we, all we would recognize is, is the impossibility of being able to do enough good to make up for what we've done. It's kind of like, I know some of you may have heard this illustration before, and it's true. Um, if you're in California and you decide to swim to Hawaii, which is, I think, 3,000 miles. I think that's how long it is. Uh, even if you are the best swimmer on the planet and you're able to swim for 20 miles, you're still not going to make it. You're going to die and you're going to drown. And you'll be eaten by the fish. And so that's kind of the gap. You know, it comes to, if, if, if there was a way that it was established that, yep, okay, so God says, okay, finally, here's the list. Here's the ratio. This is what you can do to earn your salvation. That's what it would look like. And everybody would just throw their hands up and say, I, why even try? There's no way. Exactly. And that's what he wants these individuals to recognize uh, when it comes to the things that they have done. So that's why um, 
when uh, you know some, we go through different people go through different things when it comes to uh, understanding their forgiveness. And so for some people, again, they can have a difficult time accepting that they've truly been forgiven uh, for their sins. There's many. I don't know. How, I don't know what the percentage is, but I do think there's a at least a decent number of Christians who, even though they understand intellectually what the Bible is saying, they still feel that they have to do certain things to earn uh, or maybe keep God's forgiveness. I'm not sure how they would word that, but that's what's going on in their mind. So again, the solution is not just, you just need to accept that God forgives you. You don't have to do all these things. That's true. We want to do those things because we are forgiven, because we're grateful. But we're not doing them so we can earn those things. Imagine if, um, if you've been married to your husband or your wife, let's say for 20 years, and let's say you, you catch them one night and they're, they're, they're cleaning the bath. It's at midnight. They're cleaning the bathroom. They're washing the dishes. And you get up and go like, what are you doing? And they say, I'm, I'm just trying to earn your love. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Earn my, I mean, that would just be so like weird and like wrong. No. I love you even if you don't clean the bathroom. I might get mad about it, but I still love you. And I'm really glad you're doing the dishes. But if you're thinking that by doing the dishes, you're going to earn my love. If you could earn it, it's going to take a whole lot more than that. (laughs) But the point is, is that would just be a straight. And imagine how you would, how maybe uh, you might feel hurt if one of your kids, if let's say you overheard your kid talking to their brother or their sister. And they were just, you know, how kids just start talking sometimes. And they don't know you're listening. And, and you hear that one of them say, well, I hope I'm doing enough for mom and dad to love me. You would be devastated. Because you're convinced you've already, that they should already know that you love them no matter what. And if, and if they're thinking, I hope I'm doing enough so mom and dad will love me. Good grief. What kind of pressure are they under? What are they thinking? And so... This is what Paul wants to alleviate these individuals from experiencing. That, no, this record of debt's been canceled. And it's been wiped out completely um, by what Christ has done. And so as a result of that, we can, um, we can rest easy. When it comes to the phrase, the record of debt, um, the record of debt is basically a handwritten document. Um, they would use a handwritten document to talk about what you owed somebody, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes, uh, when, uh, sometimes when an individual was carrying, if they, were ha- if they had to carry their cross during the days of crucifixion or if they were being crucified, um, there was different ways they did it. So when they, so when they made Jesus carry his cross, that was a very normal thing to do in those days. And normally what you would happen is in this procession, which is basically the individual carrying the cross, a bunch of Roman soldiers, uh, people would gather around. It was always a big spectacle. But normally there would be somebody in front of all of this. And that individual would be carrying either a placard or they would be yelling out what that person did. If he killed somebody, whatever it is, they would be yelling that out so everybody would know what that person had done. Uh, so that's your, that's your record of debt uh, in the way that would be used in that sense. And that would be done. So uh, this, this document that he's talking about uh, with, all of your, with all of your sins written on it is what he's kind of wants, wants them to have a picture in their mind about that. So the idea here then is that um, the word that's used 
is speaking of a bond that's writ written by a person that pledges themselves to make certain payments. So, the, so, the, so you have this record of debt, so I owe you money, we make a contract out, and Bob agrees that, yes, I owe you so much, and I'm going to pay you so much a month, whatever, till it's all paid back. That's that record. And when I make payments, you, you take the payment, you write it down, you subtract it from what I owe, and you, it's a ledger, and you go that way. And so that's this record that he's talking about. Uh, that's what he wants in the picture in their mind. So again, God is the one who cancels the bond that lies to our charge. As I've said before, remember that um, uh, when it comes to the record of debt, in some charismatic circles, this phrase has been used, and it's bled over into some other denominations. And what it is, is it's the idea that when Jesus died, he, was die he died to make payment to the devil for our sins. Okay, that's not true. Okay, that's not, who, that's not who had to be paid. God had to be paid. God is the one who's just. So he wasn't, so it wasn't, there's no payment made to the devil. Um, that's just really bad theology. Um, and it's not biblical. So don't think that God made some kind of deal with Satan or that he owed Satan anything because he, he doesn't. And we don't owe Satan anything either. Um, so, and I think I, I, I've seen, I've not, I'm not seeing any quotes, but I have heard, actually I've read in some other books, that some of the early church fathers, there are a few of them who made that statement. And I'm not sure what the context was, um, but they made a statement about, about this bond or this uh, record of debt and payment being made to Satan for this. And I'm not sure what they were thinking. Um, it's not really important. It might be interesting to read that uh, to see what they were thinking. But it's, it's completely wrong. And so as I've said, I think I said this when we were going through Lamentations on Sunday morning, that what we need to rec remember is that uh, the individual who's facing judgment, okay, the non-believer who's facing judgment, you, they need to be delivered from God. Okay, that's, that's a good way to put it, because most people don't hear it that way. We know we need to be, we need to be um, um, saved from our sins. We need to be delivered from our sins. We need to be delivered from the consequence of our sin. We need to be delivered from all these things. But in essence, who is behind all of that? It's God. I need to be delivered from God. It's God's wrath. It's God's judgment. And so I'm delivered from God, by God, for God. It's a great thing. Thank goodness. And so... Uh, we can be assured then of our salvation. Yes? I once heard a commentary Yeah, well, there's not a good idea to be thanking the devil for anything. Um, so. This is what your thoughts were on that. That what now? Your thoughts on that. Is this what's wrong? There's nothing to think about. That's what I thought. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah, there's just, there's really, there's no thoughts to give. Um, so again, there's forgiveness of sins. That's through our. We understand that we're forgiven because of our identification with Christ, and we identify with His death. He died for me. He was my substitute, and His resurrection means that the note of debt that we have is now canceled. All right, and God has set it aside, and He nailed it to the cross. So there's a quote from Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther was uh, telling this story, um, and he said he told once how Satan laid heavy condemnation on him because of his sins. So Luther told Satan to list them all. And then, as Satan listed all of his sins, Luther says he reminded Satan of the sins that he had forgotten to put down that Luther was guilty of. Then he told Satan to write across the whole list, 
paid in full by the blood of Christ. And so he rejoiced because of his forgiveness. Uh, and when I say that he was talking to Satan, he may have been. Not that Satan was there, but I mean, Luther was a very different guy. Um, but he took his sin very seriously. And uh, so that's, that's the idea with that. Yes? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If a pedophile comes to Christ, he is forgiven of all that he's done. Normally, I don't know if the word normally is correct, but I'll say it anyway. Normally, I know people who are non-believers have a real hard time with that. But that's because they misunderstand forgiveness. They, they, we normally have this idea that when we forgive, what we are saying is, it's not a big deal. It's not what it means. Okay? So let's say Ron and I have some kind of disagreement or whatever. Let's say I, I hit him in the hand with a hammer, which was his fault for giving me a hammer to use. But anyway, so, so uh, one of us says to the other, oh, man, I'm sorry, forgive me. And we will sometimes will say, oh, yeah, I forgive you. It's no big deal. And in that context, that's probably correct. But they think it's that way all the time because they don't understand what Christ went through and why he went through that. So we, what we need to remember is that that individual sins, that pedophile, what he did, his sins have been paid for. Christ was beaten and his skin was ripped off his body for what that man did. So no one got away with anything. Christ was his substitute. That is grace. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it is, it's amazing. We sometimes, we get bothered by that. But if we, if we sit back and look at it both spiritually and psychologically, it's because we're still, A, comparing. He's done things I would never do. He's worse than I am. You know, that kind of stuff. And in one sense, he has done things that are worse than what I've done. In one sense, that's true. But his sins and my sins both require the death of Christ for us to be forgiven. Um, and uh, so that's really, that's, that's, that's a hard one. Now, uh, oftentimes, individuals who get to certain levels of sin that they commit. It, it's rare when those individuals become true believers. You know, I've known, through all my years working in the jail, I probably have met a, about uh, between 150 and 200 pedophiles that I've talked to. I've met one that I thought really became a Christian. Several said they became Christians, um, but I've only met one that I thought actually did. But that's just my judgment. I'm not, I'm not the judge. God is the one that knows their heart, not me. But I've only met one. Uh, when it comes to, uh, I've known three guys who were serial rapists. I don't think any of them became believers. They all, they all claim to be. I just, have my, I just have my doubts about that. Um, but I'm not saying it can't happen, because it can. Right? I've, I have known of some serial killers who did become believers. And I've seen their stories, and I think when you hear about the way they live in prison, because they're usually in prison for life, and what's gone on, 
those individuals <coughs> seem to have become true believers. So it does happen. Um, but we have to get also get away from the idea, because we do sometimes think this, and that is those individuals really need Jesus. And we're almost implying they need Jesus more than I do. And that's never the case. Yes, Don? Well, even if God forgives a criminal for his crimes, mm -hmm. that he still may have to pay. Oh, absolutely. He owes a state or whatever. Absolutely. There's no, that does not mean that the individual should not be punished. Yeah. In fact, the ones that I believe who became believers, that's normally the first thing that they say is they, uh, they would, if, like if it's pre-trial, they would, uh, the, one, the one pedophile that I knew that I believe became a believer, the very first thing he did on his own without being told by anybody, he changed his plea from not guilty to guilty. And he, or, there was already a deal arranged. The judge was a relative of his and he was, he was going to plead guilty to something and he was going to be basically getting out in like a year or something. I mean, it was this, all this behind the scenes stuff and whatever. And so he, he canceled the deal. And he told the judge that he deserved to go to prison for what he did. And then he said he wasn't ready to get out because he was afraid he would reoffend and he didn't want to. And that he knew he needed help, but the help he needed was he needed to grow as a Christian. And he wanted to go to a particular prison, which is on, a, we were on the Big Island, which was in Oahu. It happened to be a prison where my dad was, had, was conducting a class for guys who were, um, uh, it, was a, it wasn't sex therapy but it was with sex offenders. And my dad was running a class for them, which was, had nothing to do with psychology, I promise you. Uh, it was just the Bible. And he wanted to get, because I told this guy about it, and he wanted to be sent to that prison so he could go to that class. And so the judge, first of all, the judge was angry because everything he had worked on was all being thrown out. And then he basically said, if you, if you, if you do this, I'm gonna have to give you, I think it was 20 years and da 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 and all that. And he said, yeah, I know you do. And he said, okay. And so he just said, we're going to sentence you right now. And he slammed his mallet, gave him 20 years, and then said, I will make sure that you are sent to that prison. And that was it. Um, so he was the one, I believe, became a real believer. And the, he changed. And I would, have, I would have no problem with having him over to my house with my kids. With no problem. Because um, he understood that and he was willing to face that. Um, so there are varying degrees of sins that I've seen in the criminal aspect where an individual, I don't know if it's the searing of the conscience or, you know, you, you, we, we kind of can get into sins to a point to where it's almost like a point of no return. I think there may be a point of no return. We can't decide what that is. God knows what that is. But I do think there is one. And when it comes, uh, when it comes to, to certain sexual sins, um, there seems to be a, a line where it's just, because you don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to molest kids. That doesn't happen that way. There's, there's, there's a, you start with a certain way of thinking and what have you, and then it begins to descend. Now, for some guys, it can go very quickly based on their circumstances, what they've experienced, but there's always a downward trend to get to that point. Uh, so, you, so you become so deeply enveloped in sin that you become so... Uh, I don't mean, it's not enthralled, but be, you become so immersed in it uh, that every, yeah, everything is, is the way you think, everything is just so unbelievably corrupted to a greater degree. Um, 
and there's no help for those individuals. I mean, there just isn't. Um, now, God can perform a miracle? Absolutely. And it can happen, and so I would never deny that. But I can tell you in uh, practical terms, it's unusual. Uh, but it's not just those sins too now. Um, you know, there are many, just, in fact, even, that's why we know, if you, if you read any books on evangelism, you'll know that it seems to be in most, uh, throughout most of history, that it's very rare for an individual, let's say, who's 80, to become a Christian. It's very rare. It can happen, but it's rare. Why? There's all kinds of reasons why. But that individual is very much steeped in their, just, in their sinful way of living. They may not be a serial killer and all of that, but, you know, you live ignoring God, denying God, rebelling against God in that way for all those years, whatever you were doing, even if they were, in a sense, relatively moral, it's just very, very rare. It can happen, but it's rare. Uh, it's rare for those who are 70, rare for those who are 60. Not as rare as, as those who are 80, but it's still rare. Um, and the, the uh, how would I phrase it? It seems to be that it's not unusual to find many individuals coming to know Christ before they're 20. And, and then as, as, the, as the age goes up, the, the number is there. Um, now, that's usually in America. I, in other countries, it seems to be a little different. And I don't know if anybody's done any work on that. But the main idea is sin just continues to... Uh, we're all born corrupted, and then sin corrupts us more. You know, it's kind of like we, you can have a carb that's rusting, and then there's the carb that's rusted out. Um, there's not a whole lot there to, to salvage. Um, and so we just need to remember that. And that's why we pray often so hard for our kids, and we pray so hard for those who are older, um, because there's, just, there's this resistance to God, a resistance to the gospel uh, that's there. But at the same time, here what we recognize is that uh, God's, uh, the sacrifice of Christ is so great and so fantastic. It is the only thing um, that um, can, can uh, regenerate a man, is what Christ has done. So way back to the beginning of when all this discussion started, so when it comes to um, uh, forgiveness, we, we need to recognize that God has forgiven us and we have to accept that. Sometimes what can get in the way of that is not, maybe not necessarily the severity of our sin, which that, as I've already mentioned, that can happen, but sometimes it can be pride because we're not, we're, we are refusing to recognize the seriousness of our sin. Uh, there's a phrase people use today, they've been using it for a while, and when someone's having a hard time getting over things, and they say, look, you just have to learn how to forgive yourself. And I really, I hate that, because it's not biblical. Um, you don't need to forgive yourself, because you haven't offended yourself. You offended God. We have to learn to accept forgiveness. And the first step in accepting forgiveness is recognizing what? That you need it. I need to be, that's the only, and, that, and, and forgiveness is a fantastic thing, that God, it's a gift that God's given us because if you also think about it, in all the relationships that we have with people, if there was no such thing as forgiveness, how long would these relationships last? They wouldn't last long. If there was no forgiveness, all of us in this room that are married, I don't think we'd still be married if there was no such thing as forgiveness. How, how would our marriages make it? Because who in here is perfect? None of us. And if, and if there was no such thing as forgiveness and you were perfect, you would be impossible to live with. 
right. So, but the thing is, is that, so it's, so it's, a, it's an incredible gift that God has given us. Um, but we do want to make sure that we never allow the idea to pop into our head that forgiveness then is the same thing as saying it doesn't matter or it's not a big deal. It requires the death. So, and if you've never done this, I would encourage you to do this. You can find, I don't have a, a link for you, but there are several places on the internet where you can find this described. Uh, you might want to spend some time just going through a very detailed description of the suffering of Christ, just physically, what he went through. Uh, it's really, it's, uh, it can be mind-numbing if you're trying to imagine, you want to imagine it, use your imagination uh, in, in trying to visualize what's being, what's being communicated. Uh, because it really is, it's an, it's an unbelievable kind of uh, event. There, it's very rare to ever come across an accurate picture which would always have to be a painting or a sketch by anybody that would accurately reveal what Christ would have looked like after the beatings and the crucifixion. Because it would, it, you would, it would be one of those things you would not allow your children to see. It would be so grotesque. I've seen a few, um, and uh, it's, I've seen a few that I believe that are accurate. One, one of them I thought may have gone a little overboard, I'm not sure, but what I do know is this, is that when he was, you know, when he was whipped, remember that it wasn't just he was only being hit on the back. Remember that, that these leather straps or strips of leather wrapped around his body and his legs and his arms, and, and these strips of leather were embedded with either pieces of pottery or glass or rock, and it was done that way so that then when the real pain came when they yanked it off, not, even though it hurt when they hit you, yanking that thing off because it would wrap around you and so it would, it would tear and rip skin off. Um, to give you an idea of just a small idea of what that might have felt like, if you take an old-fashioned uh, shoestring, because the shoestrings now, they're all kind of different. If you take an old-fashioned shoestring, the, the kind that are, it's out of material but it's flat, wet it. Make it wet and then, you know, squeeze it out. Then hold your arm out and then take that thing and try to, try to whip your arm so that the, it'll wrap around your arm. I dare you to end up just pull it off with all your strength because it'll, it'll tear all the skin off of your arm. And that's got no, nothing in it. That's just wrapping around there. And then imagine that, imagine some a man, a guy who's a soldier who has this thing and he's going he's gonna to hit you over and over again. It's just hard to even imagine what that's like. I, th I don't remember the details of the movie The Passion of Christ. I do think they probably came pretty close uh, to helping us to visualize what went on? Uh, Passion of Christ, um, for the believer, I think it can be a good movie because we know what's going on. Um, the non-believer, they don't know what's happening, but the believer does. Uh, but, but I just think it's good to help us to recognize that Christ volunteered for this. Um, he wanted to do this for us. That's, again, what we deserved. And we, and we would even agree, as we go back to the illustration of the pedophile, they definitely deserved that, and Christ was our, he was my substitute. And for that pedophile or serial killer who's become a believer, he was their substitute. And so that sin was punished in Christ. Uh, and that's why, you know, we should just be filled with thanksgiving. Um, and that should also then be a motive for us to rid our lives of sin. Um, because even though historically we would say that the Romans specifically and the Jews that were, and the Jewish leadership in Israel at that time specifically 
were responsible for the death of Christ, we are responsible for the death of Christ as well. It was, it was my sin that sent him to the cross, and it was your sin that sent him to the cross. So the, the guilt is on all of us. Uh, I know that in the past, when it came to uh, the KKK and some other groups, some other groups have tried to uh, rationalize either anti-Semitism, uh, is usually used to ra- rationalize anti-Semitism, um, to, uh, because they say, well, they were, they're Christ killers. And so they killed Christ, and so that's why we should mistreat them. Well, you need to look in the mirror, because uh, you're a Christ killer too. Uh, and so they, they've got it wrong, because they've not understood what the Bible is teaching. So that's why it's so central uh, to our theology, and that's why, if you ever wondered, the re- that's the reason why the cross is the symbol of Christianity. It's the symbol of, of crucifixion. The death of Christ is central to everything. Uh, it's, it's empty. You know, the Catholics have Jesus on the cross. Our cross is empty. There's a reason for that, because he's not there anymore. He was buried and he rose again. So that's why it's an empty cross. All right, he's, he's, it, it, the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ has everlasting effects, but the crucifixion is over. Right? He died once for sin, and that's, it's over. So that's why the cross is empty. But that's why it's been a symbol of Christianity for so long, is because the death or the atonement of Christ is central to everything that we are and believe. You take that away, you don't have Christianity. It's not existent. Um, yeah? Uh, regarding the cat of nine tails, mm-hmm. I think uh, it seemed like the Jewish leadership would stop at 39 mm-hmm. when they were flogging. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Roman soldiers, I don't think there was a 40. number. It was 40. So yeah. what do you think, how many times do you think Jesus... My guess is either 39 or 40, most likely. Because normally when they would, even though men would die from that, the goal was not for them to die. And the ones who did die from that normally died a few days later from the infections that that, that would set in. And it was extremely rare for someone to be both, to receive what they call a full flogging, that would be, I guess, all 40 lashes. It would be extremely rare for someone to get all of that and be crucified. So I used to think, that Jesus was the only one that ever happened to. I don't know if we can actually say that. It may be true, but I, I, but I just can't say I know that that's true. But I just know that it was extremely rare for anyone to ever to receive a full flogging. And, so, and some believe this to be true, and I, believe it's, I also think it's true, that when Pilate brought Jesus out after, his, after, the, after the whipping, when he said, behold the man, he wasn't being dramatic. Uh, like, you know, when we, when we do a stage play, it's like, behold, the man. Everyone gets, you know, that's not what he's doing. He was identifying who he was because you couldn't recognize him. Nobody would have recognized this guy. He was a bloody mess. And so when he said, behold, the man, and, I, and some think, and I think they may be correct, the reason why he said that is he was hoping that they would be satisfied with what he'd endured. And that's then when they started yelling for his crucifixion. And, you know, he was just, I think he was blown away. He was a coward as well, but... He was blown away by that. So it's a big deal. Yes? Well, I've been talking about 39 ISIS minus one. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. So, um, when he, when he, uh, okay, we have time. So he talks about, uh, verse 14 again. So, by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. So, the legal demand that he's talking about there is, again, it refers to a binding law or maybe an edict. Again, it would be placed in a public place for everyone to see. Um, and the idea was is that, again, 
you owe. So we, we have a little bit of that in, in, in our society. Um, and I think they still do it. If you get arrested for a DUI, that your picture's in the paper the next day, just in case you didn't know. Um, and then if you get arrested for anything, you can just go online, you can look it up. They have your much, most time your mugshot's there. Just look it up. You can just go every day. Just <laughs> go to the sheriff's. I don't know what the website is, but you can look it up. But I mean, you know, if you want to see who it is, they, they got the mugshots right there. It's, it's public record. Uh, and part of the reason for that, uh, at least back when all that was established, I don't know about now if people would say the same thing, uh, but the idea was is that that sense of shame might help an individual to maybe not do certain things uh, because of that. I know that in many states, um, when individuals get arrested for prostitution, the, all the clients, their pictures are, are put in the paper. And there's been a few men who've gotten in big trouble from all that, um, maybe as they should uh, as a result. But that, start, that, that was started, that was not, had, not, had not always been that way, but it started that way as individuals saying that um, when, it, when it came to the women who were arrested for prostitution, someone was saying, well, wait a minute now, their, their clients are guilty of breaking the law too. Why are we treating them so differently? And so they started putting their picture in the paper. Uh, and again, and that was done specifically to try to cut down. It didn't work, but to try to cut down on what was going on with that. But what he, what he says here is interesting about this. When he talks about that this debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So it's, it's almost like this. So the law then is against us or the law is hostile towards us. It stands against us uh, because it, it is stating that, that, that I, I've broken the law and I, and I have this debt. So the law is against me. So it's viewing the law as being kind of like a prosecutor. And he's really trying to help them recognize, which I think they already do, but to understand how everything was against you. And that you were, you were not only were you in this helpless situation, you're not a helpless victim. You're not a victim. You're helpless. You can't get out of it on your own, but you're not a victim. It's what you've done. You, you really do owe these things. And as a result, uh, it magnifies the grace of God. And so that's what Paul is getting at. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that during the day of Paul, it was a very cruel time to live. It was not a civil society like what we have. Maybe, maybe by barbaric standards, it was civil. But it, it was not civil. Um, you, would, you would have, uh, like, like we hear about sometimes even today in some uh, Muslim states that if an individual, even a child, you get caught stealing, they cut your hand off. And sometimes there's not like a trial. You know, sometimes they'll catch you in the act and the cop will just take you, boom, done. You know, that, man, that's like, that's, even though the person is guilty of stealing, that, that, that seems to be pretty barbaric, you know, that type of thing. Uh, all those kinds of things was very, very common in those days. The whole idea of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that was just, that was just the law of the land. And people, what we would say, you take the law in your own hands, that would happen all the time. So it was a very barbaric time, and people were very much aware, A, life was very precious, life was very vulnerable to death. Um, there was a very strict standard, there was very little mercy, if any. Uh, you know, when an individual, if you, be, if you enslaved yourself because you owed money, you were a slave until you paid every penny. There was, your master did not ever come to you and say, you know what? I mean, I know that you owe me a lot of money and you're supposed to serve me for 10 years, but you've been done really good for eight years. I think we're done. That didn't happen. 
it was, we're getting all 10 years out of you, period. Um, in, most, in many prisons, um, if you didn't have family or friends who would bring you food, you didn't eat if you, were, if you were an inmate. And your family and friends would have to know that when they bring you food, they got to bring enough for the guards because the guards are going to take what they want first. And that was not considered to be unjust. That just was the thing. It just, that's just how it was. Um, so, you know, when you hear about Paul being arrested and people coming to see him, well, not only were they allowed to visit him, but there were, also, there were people who were coming to take care of him. Uh, because if they didn't bring him food, there was no cafeteria in the prison. There was no kitchen. You know, what do we serve the inmates today? Nobody was asking that question. <laughs> you know, it was just, you know, whatever. Uh, unless you were a unique prisoner and maybe a king or a general said, yeah, you're going to feed this guy, and then you would have to do that. So again, this, this, uh, this note or this record of our debt, it's set aside. It was nailed to the cross. So again, Jesus, once for all, death on the cross in the past has produced a permanent, eternally efficacious effect, specifically in regard to the removal of the bond that once was against us. The debt is permanently removed and cannot be presented against us again. This truth also helps us to understand how it is that we are complete in Christ. So even though we are growing in holiness, I am complete. Nothing else needs to happen to me to get me ready for heaven. I am going because I'm dressed in the righteousness of Christ. How grateful I am for that. Uh, when we bury our loved ones, uh, we need to remember that, you know, if you, when you bury your mother, your mother is not in heaven because she was a good mom. In fact, your mom was an imperfect mom because every person is, right? We're all imperfect. So her imperfections does not keep her out of heaven. And... Your mom being a Christian, she was not a perfect Christian. Her performance as a Christian is not what guaranteed her place in heaven. It was what Christ has done. Now again, as we mentioned before, sometimes people get nervous with that because we think that means we can just go out and sin. It doesn't mean that. That doesn't mean that at all. But the bottom line is we are relieved from this idea, which is very natural for us to think, that um, uh, that individual or maybe we need to be good enough to, to keep saved or whatever. And it's, it's amazing how often that can crop up in our moment of weakness or a moment of fear. Um, we are, we kind of, we go, we drift back to that idea unless it's just been so solidified in our minds that no, I belong to Christ. Um, and nothing can change that. And we may go, you know, you may go through some great failure in your life and suddenly feel completely unworthy. And in one sense, you may be accurate. You are completely unworthy. But that's not how you're getting to heaven. We are made worthy because of what Christ has done. And so maybe in those, sometimes going through those moments can be great because it really helps us to have a, a better sense. When I say, when I use the word sense, I mean that where there's a combination of of intellectual and emotional uh, understanding, where those things combined, so there is a, I guess you would say, a feeling that's generated where it just kind of, everything just kind of comes home when the lights turn on, and it's like, yes, this is so great, um, and we're, we're really grateful for that. Um, and so that's what I think Paul is trying to get at. Let me read a couple of verses to you. First John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. First John, uh, John writes this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning 
also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So again, the, what's presented there is he makes it very clear that the one who is living in habitual sin um, is living in lawlessness. But then he says, you know he, that's Christ, appeared, he came to earth to take away our sin. And of course, in him there is no sin. He, he, he took it away. Micah chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So there's this language used in the Old Testament to remind us about the distance uh, of where God places our sin compared to himself or compared to us. It's, it's never going to be a case. We have a phrase we use a lot where we'll say, that's the last straw. All right? And they even, even have a kid's game where they have a little plastic camel that's already broken in the middle. And there's a basket on each side, and you put a straw in, and they put a straw in. And then eventually, you get to where it's the straw that broke the camel's back, right? And then it breaks, so you're the loser. Um, all right, so that's the last straw. So we use that phrasing when, let's say that somebody has lied to you repeatedly, and you've said you've forgiven them, and then they lie again for maybe the 80th time, and you go, you know what? It's the last straw. I'm done. Well, no, that probably means you didn't forgive them to begin with, but uh, that never happens with God. It doesn't happen. It, it's, it's a hard thing to imagine. It's something that we, in fact, you will be tempted sometimes to take advantage of that. God's going to forgive. I've, I've even heard people, I've heard people say this. People will say, I was talking to this guy once, and he, this is what he told me. He said, I know I'm a Christian, and a lady I want to marry is a Christian, and I know that it's a sin for us to get married because when they started dating, she was married and then she divorced her husband just because she wanted to marry this guy and he, and he was married. He divorced his wife so he could marry her and he said, I know it's a sin for us to get married but I know God's going to forgive us. We're going to get married anyway. And I said, you're probably not a believer so you're not forgiven. He's like, What? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and, and I said, and if you are, if that's how you view God's forgiveness, I don't think your marriage is going to be what you think it's going to be. There, there, there's going to be some issues. Um, but people, they some, maybe it happens a lot. And it may not always be in a dramatic scene like that, but we, we kind of think that way, or we can. And we have to be very, very careful. Uh, that's why you want to stress growing in Christ, growing as believers. Because as we grow as believers, we will not think that way. That would be abhorrent to us. Imagine that you have two people that you are very good friends with and they're married, and you hear one of them say, well, you know, I know it's wrong for me to have an affair, but I know my spouse will forgive me because that's just how they are. You're like, what? No, that's just so wrong. You know, we would just, we would explode with, with anger if that kind of thing was being said. So anyway, so uh, we'll stop there and um, we will continue on. I thought we'd get through with more than just verse 14, but I think the others will go a little quicker because if he's just kind of extrapolating this out and helping them understand, and we'll, we'll begin to move a little quicker through the chapter. 
uh, as we kind of put all this together um, so that these, these individuals think the way they're supposed to think, that we will think the way we should, we should think as believers. Father in heaven, we thank you again for being so good to us. And again, we thank you, Father, for the emphasis that Paul is putting on what took place with Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. We ask you to help us, Father, to be able to apprehend all that Christ has done. We also pray, Lord, that you would help us to, at the same time, to recognize that the way we live our lives, we, we can either reveal that we are grateful and that we understand what Christ has done, or we can kind of take it for granted because we refuse to do the right thing or to live the right way. There's a balance there, Lord, that we're not always the best judges to be able to figure out where that's at. And so we pray, Father, you help us to mature as believers, to live in wisdom, to approach life in a way that really does honor you, and that, Father, we would be truly grateful and that we would have a deep love, a real love for you, knowing, Lord, that you have indeed loved us first. Not only have you said that you love us, but you've proved it to us through Christ and through all the many ways that you've blessed us since the time we became believers. So, Father, we ask now that you would dismiss us with your blessing. As always, we thank you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.